Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, I'm Nico Action, and you can find me at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Today we have with us two amazing voices from X's for Podcast. I'm Kyle. You can find me at both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. And I am Robbie, and you can find me at Age of Hilaris on Twitter. Today we're going to be covering Marauders Number no. 13 by Vita Alaya and Matteo Loli, which details Storm's recovery of the Skybreaker, a sacred weapon from Wakanda, which will be needed for her part in the Ten of Swords event. She goes against her former family, the Regency of Wakanda, in the form of Queen Ramonda and Shuri, both of whom are currently taking care of things while Black Panther is away. They offer her everything they can, from armies to custom weapons to the sacred weapons of Wakanda. However, what Storm needs is a weapon so sacred that only the King's hand is meant to touch it. While many X-Men fans are very comfortable talking about Storm and discussing her X-Men history, frequently, her time in the Black Panther's world of Wakanda is forgotten or at least not as explored on the mutant side of things. I know that we've all been loving Storm's transformation into the queen of the X-Men that she's become, ruling on the side of the Quiet Council alongside Nightcrawler and Storm. But Kyle, I want to know, as a longtime Storm fan, how did it feel for you finally seeing Storm connect with her Wakandan side? Yeah. Oh, oh, wow. So you're correct in saying that I have a pretty good affinity with Storm, but I completely missed the entire time where she was Queen of Wakanda uh, and when things broke off between her and Chala. So, well, pretty tragically, some of that missing knowledge comes down to little more than a few panels in which Storm and Black Panther (laughs) have a dissolution during the course of AVX. Yeah, I, I actually actually just read that this week so um yeah it was it was a little weird having read this book before reading the events of that occurred in avx so but it did help to kind of fill in a bit of my missing knowledge robbie what's your relationship with storm wakanda and the greater picture of the way the two pieces fit together you know one thing i do really like about wakanda is how it's an incredibly advanced country and how a lot of it is very women-led. We kind of see that a lot, especially in this issue with like Shuri and then the Queen. And um, and, well, overall with like with Storm, uh, she definitely is a character that's um, always been one of my favorites in the X-Men and she's always been a character who I've always seen kind of like as the mother of the X-Men. And I think Storm's role as the mother of the X-Men makes a lot of sense. She was introduced in sort of a sisterly fashion to Nightcrawler and Colossus, but ultimately, it's only a handful of years into her time in the X-Men, about five, before she becomes mother to Kitty Pride. 
Yeah, and um, one thing too is that we see, especially in this issue, is a very, even though she's going about things in like a deep manner, that she also tries to go about it in a very respectful way. I really like how she tries to go about it in a very, you know, respectful manner with like asking and then like having that conversation. Storm is such a unique entity in the Marvel Universe. She is both capable of moving with the grace of a regent and the cunning of a thief. And I think it's that sort of dichotomy that is part of what makes Storm such an interesting, unique entry into the Marvel Universe. We see her play so many different roles here so quickly, whether it's mother to Kate, thief out to save her people, or that of an equal regent coming to another royal family and saying, hey, I need help. My people need help. It's also the grace that she declines the offers with. And then lastly, it's that sort of kindness she shows where, I mean, frankly, Storm should be able to take out Shuri. I think Shuri's amazing, but Storm versus Shuri, there's so few people that Storm yeah, should lose to. Yeah, I mean, Storm versus a technology-based ability, I I, I kind of feel like that would be overpowering. And it doesn't even have much to do with Shuri herself, who is competent, powerful, brilliant, has been Black Panther, has been a spy, has gone to space. Like, there's so little that I think Shuri can't do, but mm -hmm. Storm is just such a powerful figure with so many abilities. Yeah. But one of the things that moved me the most was how beautifully they showed Kitty and Storm's relationship at the beginning. I really loved that Kitty knew where to find Storm, and she even knew how to bring her comfort. And that was that sort of bit of Kitty and Storm, that Storm motherhood that we were just talking about, that we loved so much. That That's part of what I think of when I think of Storm. Yeah. And then uh, one good thing with um, that that you bring up with Kitty is how right in the beginning of this issue, we see that um, Kitty knows where to find Storm when she's stressed out. And that's a very important uh, dynamic in their relationship that they have because not many people truly know that Storm goes to like a garden area when, she's, when she has a lot on her mind. And I think it's significant that she doesn't just say, oh, you'll be in your garden. Garden. Oh, you'll be growing yeah. something. She says that you'd be around something green. She knows her so well that she even knows what kind of gardening she'd be doing. Because, like, look, you're a gardener. You're not gardening everything. <laughs> but you might have an interest in flowers, or you might have an interest in carrots, or you might have an interest in trees. And to understand who Storm is so well that she even knows what kind of flowers and plant life Storm would want to be around, that's kind of a testament to how well Kate does know Storm. And in that regard, this wasn't just a Storm issue. I mean, the whole book was Storm as a woman. I mean, as much as this was an issue of Marauders, this was really an issue for and about Storm, celebrating her blackness, celebrating her power as a thief and a woman and a queen. And I loved all of that for Storm. But we even got these beautiful little moments of Kitty being like, no, I know you pretty well. I know that it puts a crease between your perfect little eyebrows. <laughs> they really are. And speaking of perfect subtlety, I want to take a couple of moments just to highlight the incredible work Matteo Loli did on this issue. There was, you know, so I had this friend, Jacob, and Jacob is a professional actor and a singer, and he's so talented. And one time I was at his place and I was singing, and I commented that, you know, I hate the way I sound on that one song because I just feel like I can't make my voice do certain things. And he was like, well, right. Most people aren't great at singing every genre of music. And like, this professional 
Daniel that I really respect telling me that it's okay to not be perfect at everything was super comforting, but also it helped me to understand that, okay, you don't have to be the best, but like then Matteo Loli comes out with this issue and makes it look so easy to draw in four unique, completely different looking styles. It was overwhelming because here I am comforting myself that I don't have to be good at everything. And then this guy comes out with four different styles in a single book and it's breathtaking top to bottom. Tadashi <laughs> yes. was mad impressive. <laughs> yeah, like the stuff with Storm's uh, history where everybody kind of looks like like a marionette and I, I just loved that look and then you have the flashback where they tell the story of Skybreaker where it's a completely different style it just it's eye-opening it's all stunning and it's that he makes it look so effortless in a single issue yes. I go to the Ani DeFranco quote where, you know, everyone harbors a secret hatred for the prettiest girl in the room. And like, you know, it's hard not to be like jealous that somebody can produce this. But at the same time, Loli really creates such a powerful image. It's hard not to just be overwhelmed by the material on the page. I found myself very engaged with what he was telling visually as well as what the story was indicating was like progressing those panels on the side that show storm develop over time and that's a credit not just to loli but also to vita for coming up and writing those in when you think about the best artistic blend of writing and art it's always people who understand how to make those images work and so i feel like you can see the love of independent comics that used that sort of framing for both Vita and Mateo's work in this instance. So I'm a really big fan of a lot of what I saw here. And those panels on the sides of those pages do more than just show the different looks Storm has had over the years. They actually indicate to us the different roles that Storm has played in her own life, and they remind us of her multitude. It's that multitude that plays out across this issue. Vita and Matteo Loli didn't just design an issue that showed us one form of storm. They showed us the great multitude within her, whether it's teacher, thief, queen, friend, lover, mother. They gave us so many views into her. And while the writing did a great portion of making that so clear, not enough can be said about the art and the ways in which the art supported and brought that to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This this really set up everything that we need to know moving through this event, I believe. And one thing one thing about the art that I wanted to point out, um, in the scene where she's trying to steal this uh the sword, I thought it was really cool how most of the art um the scenes have like a purple coloring to it. And then when when she actually grabs the sword, it switches to like more blue colors when she actually has it. And that's actually something I wanted to pay tribute to with this issue as well. One of the yeah. things that really stood out for me in this issue was the powerful use of color and light as an indicator of the situation going on. The issue starts with a bright, warm hopefulness. Everything on Krakoa is light and lush. Then when we get to Wakanda, the lighting starts warm and inviting, and every time Storm graciously has to turn down the offers from the Wakandan Regency, she hesitates with sadness and we see the light start to slowly change to finally where we get to storm needing to say i need the skybreaker it's just too much the art has changed and we can see the passion in shuri's face the horror in queen ramonda's face and more than that the light around them has changed the scene Mm -hmm. to make it clear that it's so dramatic 
it went from bright and warm to this more controlled focused light oh, because yeah, this is the right. point at which I honestly this... didn't really notice that as as things wow. got yeah um, it's a huge point of transition in the story more stress between the characters it definitely took on a different feel because of the color yeah you're right that's a good point and i really love uh shuri's facial expression at the end of that and to talk about shuri's face in that scene for a moment i really did love everything that the art gave us in terms of shuri and queen ramonda it would be too easy for an artist to sort of hand wave oh um a black woman in wakandan cultural garb okay Mm -hmm. that just looks like this whatever it's just so easy to say but instead we actually got unique visuals for each of these women and their personalities shined through so clearly it was amazing and you know it strikes me that this is this team's first story together loli has been on the book before but this is vita's first entry and so this merge is beautiful Right. This is this is a an entirely different. Uh, they're a guest team, right? Yeah. So I wind up thinking about how that reflects really beautifully on both Vita and Jerry Dugan. When a person who is different, a person of color, a queer person, someone who doesn't necessarily fit the cultural perception that a comic book writer is probably a white male nerd type, right? When somebody comes along with a different perspective. It lends an authenticity to the story. And Vita certainly lends an incredible credibility as a person of color, as someone non-binary, coming in and writing this incredibly complex series of women with such beautiful dexterity is so important and so powerful, but that it felt still like an issue of Marauders, like an issue of the title we've been following, is an enormous credit to what Jerry Dugan has sought to do in the last few years. He's truly crafted a title that feels representative of the people inside of it. Now, if we can't have more inclusive, diverse writers writing more inclusive, diverse characters, I'm going to absolutely take an ally who does the time and thinks it out and crafts a narrative worth reading, and I'm going to give them a lot of credit. I really think this interplay between the book Jerry created and the book Vita Keeps Working in this issue is a testament to both of their ability to work with one another and their medium. And one thing that's just so overall beautiful with this issue that uh, Vita does is um, this is just having an issue where Black women interact with each other, which is unfortunately something that we rarely ever see in X-Men. The last time we've seen it was maybe Storm and Monet interacting in Giant Size. And then before that, I don't remember. Well, and I love Monet a lot, but I've actually had some issues with how she's been written lately. She's been a little glib about her friends being in mortal danger. But, you know, talking about black characters being able to interact on the page, you know, when you think about the first black X-Man ever, it was Storm in 1975. But the first black Mm -hmm. X-Man was, yeah, Bishop. And Bishop wasn't introduced until 1992. Wow. That's a long-ass time. So sometimes when people say that they really want the X-Men animated series to come back or they want to see the classic movies get continued, I'm kind of like, I want to see new things. I want to see the characters move forward. I want to see representation on the screen. And so, yeah, I I appreciate the old stuff. But at the time they made that animated series, there just were two black X-Men to pick from. So... So in talking about a desire to see these amazing characters of color interact, the old universe doesn't really leave the room for that. I would love to see something grow out of the incredible wealth of material that Hoxpox has given, giving these characters a chance to thrive on screen. I know that as much as I have some complaints about her recent portrayal, I love Monet. I think Monet is amazing, and I think it's high time that we get Monet in an animated series or in a TV show. 
Not many people do. Oh my god. Can you imagine moaning in an X-Men uh, cartoon series? That would be phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely can imagine it, and I think it's kind of time that we get there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I'm very proud of being Cuban. I am very proud of my heritage, and it's an important part of who I am, but I recognize that my white skin absolutely changes the equation for me that it does from a lot of my Cuban family. And it's to that extent that I understand that there are some limitations on my window view into relationships between people of color because they have an entire set of societal pressures I can't even begin to understand the way in which they affect people. Now, that said, it kind of brings me from one queen to another queen, from the queen of Wakanda and the queen of all weather to Queen Bay. Now, when she had initially, Beyonce, had initially announced that she was going to be doing her Mrs. Carter tour, I was kind of thrown that she would ever try to use a different name than Beyonce. Because to me, Beyonce is the definition of power. She's like a Cher or a Reba or a Madonna. She's one of those first names that gets to be its own thing. She chose to say that this tour is the Mrs. Carter tour. I was pretty surprised by it, but a friend of mine said, well, actually, frequently, relationships in the black community are treated differently by white media, and she's making a statement of love and standing by her husband. And that really changed for me how I felt about the situation and helped me to see that there was more at play than just what I understood to be the purpose of the narrative. Now, all that said, I think in some ways having Storm become Black Panther's queen did decrease her role from, oh, she's Storm, she's her own thing, she's the biggest name in the X-Men, to, oh, now she's a side character in Black Panther. And I do understand how for a lot of people that was difficult, and considering the dissolution of their marriage came down to one sentence in an issue of an AVX tie-in, well, yeah, this marriage has been mistreated terribly, but there was something so powerful and so honest about T'Challa and Storm exchange at the end of this issue. Storm has already decided she has to steal, and she's taken out Shuri, and now here she is confronted by her ex-husband. And he says, I would have given you any of this. You could have had any of this. There was no reason to betray me. And she's kind of like, actually, you knew I needed your help and it wasn't convenient. So you didn't come to help me. I did what I had to do for my people, just as you would have to do for your people. In that moment, they didn't strike me as former lovers. They struck me as two leaders of their people. And in a way that transcended any of the other trappings, they were leaders. In that moment, that is who they were and what they had to do. Yeah. I thought that was an incredibly powerful and telling moment. And, you know, I did feel like when I walked away from this issue, I had some hope for the future. It wasn't all a mess or anything, but there were definitely elements to that exchange that like warmed my heart and broke my heart and then kind of maybe like pushed me down the stairs a little bit. Yeah, and that that section, that that was really heartbreaking because you could tell that both of them knew that by taking this step, it would be very difficult for them to to repair what any any damage that would be done as a result of it. And even still, T'Challa realized that it needed to be done and Storm regretted that it needed to be done. So there's even 
even with that knowledge, they left it with a possibility that, hey, they may just be able to start over again. Yeah, and one thing that's just also so sad about this is that after she steps um, away through the gate, you just know that even though this big situation happened, that all those characters still love each other. And you know, until you'd said it that way, I don't think I'd really thought of it. But yeah, that regard of this is still a family is so important to not just the X-Men, but to Black Panther and the Wakandan family. And thinking about it as these two leaders of these broken families right now, that's a powerful image. And to one more time, talk about the juxtaposition of art and writing together. There were parts of this that I just truly found spellbinding. There's a consistency to the narrative and to the art that goes throughout the entire issue. But Vita and Matteo Loli still managed to recontextualize humongous parts of this story for me by changing the art alone. Understanding that this is a Regency, and so the type of clothes and the situation they are in plays a major factor. I'm not necessarily saying Storm changed her hair and her outfit in a way that's like, oh, women always be changing their hair and their outfits. No, nothing like that. But instead, the outfit and the hair managed to contextualize what was going on on the page Mm. at the time. Something I really appreciated was that Storm looked totally different when she was being a thief than when she met with the Queen of Wakanda. And that is because in her lowly thief form, she would never meet with the Queen. And you know, that's kind of true of T'Challa as well. T'Challa has different modes and different outfits he operates within. So it kind of made sense to me in a way that fit the book. When she was dressed in her uh, thief apparel, uh, I just love the way that she did did up her hair to keep it It from flowing. (laughs) Very true. (laughs) Uh, And I think something I loved was that the look they gave her for being a thief was kind of like lighter and easier and kind of fun. You know, kind of like she's kind of like a little mutant Robin Hood, right? Just kind of like Robin from the rich to give to the poor, I guess, sort of kind of. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah and one thing i really do love in general about um vita's writing and interpretation with things is on a personal level i can relate because vita is also puerto rican and in comics you don't really ever see any writers or artists that are puerto rican so to be able to have like my favorite comic series have a writer who is um similar to me it's honestly nice because seeing Vita and you know writing you know it shows me like hey I could also you know enter the industry and be like Vita you know Vita in my eyes it currently is probably my current role model for comics I would say this is Josh Will. Welcome to the West Coast room of this week's X's for Podcast. We're going to be talking about chapter five and six of X of Swords, Marauders issue 13 and Hellions issue five. First up, we're going to begin with Marauders number 13, written by Vita Ayala, art by Matteo Loli, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VC's Corey Pettit. Storm is tasked with retrieving Skybreaker, the sacred first sword of Wakanda. She's greeted upon arrival as a dignitary from Krakoa by the Queen Mother Ramonda and Princess Shuri, but they must deny her request for the sword. She waits for T'Challa, but eventually must use her intimate knowledge of the nation's security and her history as a thief to steal it for herself, even if that means having to fight her sister or her husband. 
So I have with me today the illustrious Raven. Raven, introduce yourself and tell us where we can find you. Hello, I'm Raven. You can find me at Dame Red Bento. Literally type it in. It'll give you my Twitter, my Instagram, uh, my Twitch channel. And hopefully by the end of next month, I will have everything up and running like a smooth sailing ship. Uh, I'm a gamer, comic nerd, anime nerd, pretty much name a nerddom. I love getting into it. And I really thank you guys for inviting me to the program. All right. And also with us is the sexy Latino beast, Arturo. Arturo, introduce yourself. Hi, guys. Uh, I'm Arturo. I'm Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram, uh, where I'm just a big old nerd. And I'm very happy to be here with you. And you know me, I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at my website, asleepatthewheel.com, where we have regular recaps and reviews of everything X. So, from the prophecies of Opaluna Saturnine, once goddess, once queen, one sword with which to split the sky in twain, vibranium inlaid, a tempest contained, the wrath of heaven comes wielding a legacy. Raven, yes. I need you to get us started. Tell me about <laughs> Marauders 13. Oh my goodness. It, I just dove into this last night and gave it a good thorough read. And it was very interesting. And I'm glad how true that they stayed to their characters because I know... Uh, you know, both Storm and Shuri have been in the uh, Marvel MCU on the movie side, but their characters are a little bit different than what you would normally see in the comics. And I feel this comic's really keeping true to them. But oh my goodness, I was left practically yelling at the pages because, oh, what they did with Storm was, was, um, I hate that they had to push her to that level, but she did exactly what a goddess who has always thought about her people being the people of the world or the people in her tribe or the people in her country. Like she thinks about the very big picture versus a, a rather small picture. And like, yeah, they, they pushed her to it and she did what she needed to do in order to save, or at least attempt to save the world. So yeah, it was, Oh my goodness. It was such a very good and needed uh, portion of the plot and it was also interesting to see her uh interact with with each of the characters because sometimes when you pick up a comic book you can just you know dive in easily follow the story and it's okay got it sometimes you jump in and like if you haven't read literally everything previous to it you're completely lost this had that good fine balance between they gave you enough backstory that you could follow along, but it makes you want to go back and read the first stuff anyways. Um, but yeah, they didn't like go, oh, let's just spoon feed it to you all. It's like, oh, such good pacing, such good storyline. Just, oh, I, was, I loved it. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And they did the characters right. I agree. Uh, I think what Vita did here was masterful. The best stories to me are the ones that are relationship based, not mm -hmm. plot or gimmick based. And what Vita did here, not just nailing each character individually, but really that relationship. Mm -hmm. You can see Storm changing her register. Like you can see her interacting differently, the different type of love and trust and relationship with Kitty at the beginning mm -hmm. compared to the sisterly relationship with Shuri compared to the deference she shows to Ramonda, who was once her mother-in-law. 
compared to that natural pushback to an adversary who was her equal, but it didn't always feel that way in her husband, ex-husband, wherever you want to say yes. that. Like the the way each of those relationships was handled was just so well done. And, you know, we had talked in the green room before this. I have some strong feelings just about what this says about the comics industry and, and how difficult it is for writers of color to get ahead when this issue was released the same week as Ben Percy's two-parter. And I like Ben Percy. He's our sexy lumberjack. Uh, <laughs> but we were critical about those two issues of X-Force and Wolverine and how you know we felt they really should have been one tight issue. And in the same week, Vita had that tight issue. Vita told the same story, the same trajectory, one character's journey to get the sword and bring it back to Krakoa in one issue tighter and deeper, more impressive. Um, The response to those issues, you can tell um, fans have responded wholeheartedly to this Marauders issue in a way they have not responded to anything from X-Force or Wolverine yet in those runs. And it speaks to how I think white mediocrity is still valued over, you know, excellence from a person of color. It's frustrating. It's disappointing because we all know how good Vita is. These characters need that type of voice in the representation. There's a reason why those Marvel snapshots specials that they've been releasing lately are so freaking good. I can tell you as a Muslim, like when I read G. Willow Wilson or Saladin Ahmed writing Kamala Khan, when I read a Muslim writer writing a Muslim character, you can tell. And when you read a non-Muslim writer trying to be <laughs> Muslimy writing a Muslim character, oh, you can tell. And I know that every other person who relates to a group, who feels disenfranchised or other as part of their identity because of our fucked up society, feels the same way when they keep getting some of these writers writing their characters that can't relate to the experiences or the background of that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could you could honestly tell that on the story side, you could also see it in just the way the characters talked and the way everything was presented. And honestly, even in the clothing at self which i i know a lot of people just kind of overlook costumes because you know it's a, it's a costume it's a costume it's just there i'm like yeah but there are costumes and there are costumes that make you roll your eye as a woman because you're going that's not gonna stay up that's there's got to be super glue on that that's all i gotta say but with this like it it felt like we were being presented very full, very whole, very thought out characters from the way they spoke down to, you know, what they wore and how they interacted with each other. And it was great because they didn't they didn't try and make Shuri more uh, childlike, which they did in the movies because she was only supposed to be like in her late teens. Mm-hmm. Um, they made her a very fully realized character you could see that she was strategic and that she thought out everything, that she was sharp-witted. I mean, she knew what Storm was going to do, but oh, she yeah. still, you know, gave her uh, a way to, like, you know, back These out or not. These are two former queens of Wakanda. Yes. And she's like... private conversation with so much, with so, most of yeah. the conversation happening in the 
unspoken part. Yeah, so much subtext. And I'm like, oh, she's telling her that I know what you're going to do. And I'm asking you not to do it. Because if you do it, then I got to do what I got to do. And it's like, thank you. And it was all like, and it was all under the surface. You know, it was. I, I mm-hmm. fully agree with you guys on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the Beatle knocked it out of the park. I want to just touch on that, what Josh was, was saying. I think. You know, the fans, we've all known that Vita's like in the room, the X Slack channel, and they've got stuff cooking. But mm-hmm. actually seeing this payoff, seeing this one issue, they just were like popping wheelies with this, like just showing off and doing such mm-hmm. a good, such a good tight. I mean, Josh said it, the word tight is, is definitely it. Such a tight mm-hmm. story where they got so much in and the pacing was good. It moved quickly. It You can tell that they were paying very close attention like i love the point that you brought up raven about the costumes i love seeing storm at first in white with her big ponytail and she shows up you know like a Mm -hmm. diplomat you know like a a a former queen she shows up in all her glory and then seeing her you know pin her hair up and 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 go cat burglar with the with the black Mm -hmm. suit it's just it's yes. so, it was so cool to see all these different facets of Storm told in, in one story. And I agree with, you know, the relationships and the way her tone changed depending on who she was engaging with on, on the page. Um yeah, it was just it was just an incredible book. And I think it's I think it's unfortunate what you were saying, Josh, about you know the the way the industry and 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 you know white mediocrity kind of gets uh, ahead of the line. Um, but I will say this is, I think, a great example of like give give other voices a chance. Payoff can be so big because I, I mean I think everybody nobody could be more excited now for Vita to take over New Mutants. Um, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I've been like cautiously optimistic about Children of the Atom, and I think I'm going to maintain that cautious optimism. But I got to say. Reading this, I was like, okay, now I'm I'm a lot more into it. Now I'm, I'm oh, yeah. yes, giving new characters, and, giving new whole new dynamics. Like I, I'm here for the ride. I trust Vita, and I just want to like mm-hmm. experience more of it. There was a Absolutely. lot in this book too that, like second second reading, where I was able to appreciate. Um, so the first time I read this. By the time I got to the end, I had totally forgotten about the beginning because um, I was so caught up in it <laughs> and going back and rereading it and kind of, you know, also flipping back and forth and looking for things. The scene with Kate at the beginning really stuck out to me uh, more, not just for what it was on its own, but as a bookend compared to the scene with T'Challa mm-hmm. at the end where we have Kate at the mm-hmm. beginning, not asked for. Storm didn't ask her to be there, but there she is literally and explicitly offering her sword mm-hmm. and accepting whatever storm set like it's your call if you need me i'm here for you you can literally have my sword anytime mm-hmm. to the end mm-hmm. where it's her and t'challa and she's been calling him and he wouldn't come and now he's begrudgingly mm-hmm. like fine you can have my sword yes and- just what it says about like her relationship with those two characters and loyalty Mm -hmm. like where the real loyalty and love is for aurora um i thought was really nicely done in comparison and it totally lost on me the first time i read it yeah women often have to speak in politeness with a lot of subtext to what we're saying we don't often get to just be very blunt and say exactly what's on our mind in a brisk manner. So it, it was beautiful to actually be able to sit here and read this and go, 
oh my god, they they un- oh, it's subtext. Holy crap, they understand subtext. You're getting the back and forth and that that second line of thought that you have to be able to follow, especially when you're a woman. Like I don't think too many men understand how much subtext is in uh in language when women especially talk to each other. There's so much secondary stuff that's been said and it's in tone, it's in pitch, it's in the words that we choose and how we put them forward. And yes, that was, you pointed that out perfectly. When she's talking to Kitty Pride, Kitty, or I'm sorry, Kate, uh, knows that, you know, this world could literally end. This could all go to shit real quick. If you need anything, by all means, just ask me for it. I'm there for you. Whereas T'Challa's, the way he spoke at her, oh, that was so galling. He, it, she's like, look, I did call. I called a lot. And you decided it was not convenient for you to pick up. You decided that, eh, it's not that important to me to to speak to you or find out what's going on. You decided that I was not worth your time, even though I called, even though I you know tried speaking through other means, even though I literally showed up here in a diplomatic role. You still were like, nah, you could wait a couple days while the world could literally end and God knows how fast. And it's like, what kind of raging narcissistic a-hole do you have to be to not recognize that when Storm, a goddess, your ex-wife, a person who is probably even more diplomatic than you are, like shows up and really, really needs something, video conference her. I don't care what you have to do, but talk to her because she's not going to just show up frivolously and go, hey, do you mind if I just borrow this little thing over here? I'm going to have some funsies with it. It's like, dude, hello. She's, she's calling. She's showing up for a reason and you can't even. But yeah, it's like, oh, it was great to see such different dichotomies in how the characters interacted with each other and how how they trusted each other. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, and the other the other thing going on that with uh, her interaction with T'Challa, like I... So going back to when they got married, um, you know, I thought that was cool and I, and I understand why. And, and I think it was cool to pretty much bring like the two most prominent black characters in the Marvel universe together and the way that they kind of like retconned and shoehorned all of this history between them. Like when she was a thief in Cairo and, you know, and then he was a young boy they had met, um, you know, it, it's a little hit or miss, but when they were together, I I feel like it was kind of a, a, a bit of a disservice to both of the characters. There's something about when characters get married in a book that sometimes it's great and it and it works, and sometimes it just kind of like okay, now what? Um, I'm so happy now that they're divorced or separated or whatever. I think it makes for such an interesting just minefield of stories that can be told here because it's not like they have an acrimonious you know you know kind of breakup like there's still love and 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 and, uh and affection there um but there's so much tension and you know i just love the other thing that i love about this story as tight as it is uh 
you know, Vita definitely left a lot of room for for new stories to be told. Once you know, once everybody puts their swords away, uh, there's still a lot that has to be, you know, that, that has to be told between Wakanda and Krakoa. And and I just love that. I, I think it's it's great that there's tension there. That it's not just, uh, of course, Wakanda recognizes Krakoa. We're you know we're going to be your ally. I love that there's there's tension there, and I and I just can't wait to see what what comes out of it. Definitely. Yes. So we've been quite effusive about how great Vita is because Vita is great. Um, also have to give credit, um, those costumes that Raven was talking about, so well designed and appropriate by Matteo Loli. And for me, Loli's art was great, yeah. but Delgado on colors knocked it out of the park. So important, so vital on this issue, skin tones, when the Marauder's title has struggled so much to get skin tones right over the last year <laughs> to bring mm. someone in who could really do it right, like who beautifully done. And then the way he accented those colors, the backgrounds, mm -hmm. particularly during the action scenes with his palette of blues and purples, mm -hmm. um, and then the tempering on the flashback pages in sepia. So everything was... <laughs> The, the colors made this, it brought this to another level. It made it an absolutely beautiful issue that was rich with color in all the ways and places it should have been. You know, um, I think similar to, you know, when you, you see or you hear about how cinematography and photography, how lighting needs to be different to accent and frame different skin tones. You know, the mm -hmm. palettes that he used around it were also able to accomplish that um, in ways that other colorists have shown they don't think of or care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think the color story in and of itself was its its own story in a way. It was so beautiful because it, it lent to what was going on so perfectly. Like if you were to take out all your word bubbles you know, all of all of the other cues, you could still actually really follow that story in its own right with just the way the colors and the settings were put together. It was so beautifully done. You could tell when there was, um, you know, a fight or, or if there was a lot of tension, you could tell when you were speaking of, yeah, like you said, something in the past versus something going in the present. You, It was so wonderfully done and so smooth. It didn't feel like um the characters were just kind of popped onto a random background it felt like the background was also you know made for what they were doing it oh it was oh, it was so beautifully told and beautifully done simply with just the color palettes and the choices and you know little changes here and there to give you a real sense of what was going on um you know even in the uh in the garden where uh, Kate and Storm were talking had such a vitally different feel than, you know, when he, she was in the palaces of Wakanda, you know, it's like, Oh, it's beautifully done. So wonderfully done. Yeah. And, and credit to him for changing type there because, mm -hmm. you know, he did a really good job of mimicking the familiar Marte Gracia coloring that we're used to seeing for Krakoa. Yes. Mm -hmm make it feel to make it still feel comfortable there but then clearly doing his own unique thing once it settled in wakanda 
And I, I gotta say, this is like a how-to-do flashbacks. <laughs> like, I mm-hmm. love the flashback panels. I think that added such a, such a cool element to, to this storytelling. Because even uh, in the Krakoan Garden, gardens, when you see those little flashbacks, it's like, without even saying a word, you know, just showing but not telling, mm-hmm. and just kind of showing storm's rich history and the different you know the different storms that we've all seen uh over the years mm-hmm. was just it's just such a cool thing and i loved how mateo loli did the uh he would kind of like make the characters a little sketchier um when, mm-hmm. in the flashback just just brilliant brilliantly done yeah I, I i loved it because he he used he used a technique um that sometimes i use in in watercolor where, yeah, when you were doing a flashback, everything was a little bit grainier, a little bit muddier, um, you know, less definition, just enough that you can get the hint of, okay, this is what's going on. I can sort of matrix it. I can sort of understand, you know, what's going on. But it's not like, oh, this is clear, crystal, perfect reality. They saved that for when they were in the moment where you had to pay, you know, direct attention and, and you know, had that beautiful, brilliant pops of colors really get you to focus in on the action right in front of you. It was oh, so beautifully done. So there were two data pages in this issue. Oh, we you, had you read one, my mind. You read my mind. Yes, we got to talk <laughs> about Savalith, the uh-huh. Otherworld Realm with the Otherworld Realm with Vampire Assassins, mm-hmm. and one on Skybreaker. Um, reiterating and giving us a deeper explanation of the history of that sword and its power. Mm-hmm. Uh, thoughts on the data pages or uh, any other final thoughts on Marauders 13? Let's start with our Toro. So the, yeah, the, these data pages were a bit unexpected. I didn't know that we were going to have a vampire world in other worlds or a vampire land, I guess. So I, I'm excited to see what Sevalith is all about. I'm hoping that maybe that will tie back to uh, the Dracula shenanigans that we've been seeing in the pages of Wolverine. It'd be interesting to see that, you know, that there's something more there. Josh and I both have discussed, you know, before uh, neither one of us are big fans of vampires in, in the mutant universe. So let's see, let's see what it's about. And then the other one, what was the other one? Mercator, where beings of what is mostly perceived as light, the Telmenites. I'm curious to know what that's all about. And I, and I, I think it's interesting that they showed basically like a, a land of darkness in other world and a land of, of light in other world. So I'm, I'm curious to see what else, what other stories are going to come out of that. Yeah, it definitely gave me a kind of heaven and hell kind of feel when yeah. I read those. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that and, you know, because you're crossing between, you know, your different dimensions, your different realities and worlds and whatnot. And um, especially since you have the uh, kind of very Egyptian god slash four horsemen feel, I'm going... Okay, so is this might be a a hint that there is something more going on, which was kind of interesting and fun. I'm like, oh my god, how many how many directions are they going to take us in, and how are they going to tie it back all together? I'm actually very fascinated by the information that they gave us because they gave us just enough to like wet that appetite, and you're like, oh oh, how's this going to play into the story? Because this could be really really interesting. This could this could either pull you way off plot or this could just make your story absolutely fantastic so I'm, i honestly These cannot wait to see it very interesting and I, we mentioned this in a previous episode that as we're looking at the on-ramp as we're looking at act one of x of swords with them getting their swords and going in 
that there is so much story left to be told more than just the fights here more than just fights in an arena that like we don't really know where this is going or what else is going to come up and mm-hmm. learning about these realms is giving depth to other world but like how much of this like how big a playground how much interference or what are we going to be seeing here when we start really keeping the story in other world um and yeah, a lot of these realms have come in pairs. The realms have been coming in pairs. There's a really great dichotomy when we get to it in Hellions on the pair of uh, realms there that are covered. But yeah, just seeing how, you know, a realm of refugees, you mm-hmm. know, there's so much that have been done with places of refugees in the history of X-Comics and so many characters who could currently benefit from a place like that, uh, even in our current Dawn of X, to to know like what's going to come of, of that realm in Mercator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I... I fully believe that we could get through a ton of swords and not see anything else about Sevalith, for example, potentially. And that just becomes, that's just something that now is, it's laid, the groundwork is laid that we can go back there and and do stories. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that they're taking the time to do that, to flesh out these different realms. And I think some of it is is just table setting. Some of it is just giving us more more venues to have stories. Mm -hmm. Well, and they're supposed to be um, uh, a race of, or they have the best assassins, you know, ever known. So it'd be great to see if they don't appear directly in um, the next, in this story arc. It'd be great to see a story arc that shows how they were instrumental and why they were mentioned, because maybe they're doing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff since it was said that, you know, they could kill you like a bad dream. You know, they, they could kill you and you would never know until you're dead. Hey, guys, and welcome back to our continuing coverage of Ten of Swords over on This Is X for X is for Podcast. I'm Maddie. I'm Evelyn. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jonah, and we hope you survive this experience. So jumping in at Chapter 5 of Ten of Swords, this is Issue 13 of Marauders, written by Vita Ayala, with art by Matteo Loli, colorist Edgar Delgado, letterer VCs Corey Pettit, and design by Tom Muller. The champions of Krakoa were selected to retrieve swords to participate in a cross-dimensional tournament against the champions of Araka. Storm was one of the chosen, but the sword she must bring will not come easily. And I was dumbfounded to learn that the the storm that were not the storm of course the the sword that we were reading about in this issue was created explicitly for this issue did anybody else know that i feel like vita handled that so well no i didn't yeah no it seemed like it had so much history i was like what that's a quite shocking fact that you just told me that i just found out on air that is a who zooey mama as some might say (laughs) as i might say but I think I think this issue was pretty tremendous. I think the all of the history, the Wakandan history leading up to it during Storm mulling over the decision to go speak Queen Ramona was just so stylized, so beautifully. Matteo Loli did such an excellent job making it feel arcane and still relevant. Yeah, the artwork was absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, no, it it, it was really nice to see how they. Obviously, Wakanda's got its own look and feel, but with everything that we've seen in the Docs era being so Krakoa-based, it was really great to step out of it and just see a Wakanda-style issue. 
Absolutely. And I think going into this issue, I was really excited to read it and then go back and just look through everything once I listened to the X-Men panel that appeared online for New York Comic Con and hearing Vita talk about their work and what they wanted to do with this issue was, I, I it just made it so much more special talking about the emotional stakes that go into this huge event that aren't just the physical stakes. We know that if someone dies in other worlds that the resurrection process isn't going to work properly and they may come back as someone from a different universe or a different timeline or whatever. But the emotional stakes are something that we haven't really looked at yet. And having Storm have to go through this in Wakanda was, you know, heartbreaking, if you will. How did you guys feel about the emotional tugging of our hearts with Storm having to basically steal something from people that not only did she lead this nation, it's another family that she has and the people that she loves. Let me tell you, Vita, they killed it. Oh my gosh. Like just the you could just tell by every every page the deep history that shuri and storm had and shuri i mean they aurora and queen ramona had like you it just seeped in so much history this was probably the first time in the longest time that i felt storm has had a voice that was consistent with where she's been in the past so you really can tell that vita to get this character i completely agree the moment with Shuri where they're talking back and forth about their own commitments to different situations and different people while also loving each other and each other's situations it really tugged at my heartstrings it was so beautifully written I felt Storm's anguish and what she was going through I felt that both the artwork and the writing really conveyed the struggle that she was going with that internal struggle of doing the right thing but what that right thing is and what it means I love how the story was bookended with Aurora's relationship with Kate just ah, I just thought it was so cool to like have this deep heartbreaking moment and the one that is there for her is Kate, who's who she was always there for in the past. So it was a nice turnaround of roles. You know, and like we've been talking about in in recent issues of Marauders and in recent episodes, you know, Marauders Eleven was really a a final growing up for Kate. So it's nice to see that two issues later, she is being treated like much more of an adult figure, capable of being able to provide you know counsel and comfort to someone who was always such a maternal figure for her. Exactly, and it's something that's really interesting i think uh there was a line of the girl who threw a hissy fit over when you got a haircut or something along those lines and it was just something so special to talk about the history between these two characters that do share such a special bond and speaking of special bonds um i want to talk about you know the history of storm a bit and when Storm was first introduced into the X-Men, it's talked about a lot that she was a thief in Cairo, and that's how she survived when her parents uh, passed away and she was orphaned. How do you guys feel about this basic heist mission that Storm has gone on that, please someone correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know, I know I haven't seen Storm do something like this. We've seen her pick locks before and stuff like that, but nothing along the lines of being an actual thief, you know, going on a mission to steal something. I thought that was a really interesting take on this story compared to the Wolverine issues that we covered last time that were more, that felt like there were emotional stakes, but it didn't feel like there was enough. And here I felt like there was a lot without having to be heavy action of like, sorty fight fight. (laughs) You know, I 
I, I think that I think the emotional stakes were so much higher in this than, like you said, the previous Wolverine issues uh, spinning out of the pages of Wolverine and X Force, respectively. I think that you know we didn't even need to see in the third act of this issue a confrontation between Queen Ramona and Storm. We knew what that betrayal must. We we were able to get the reprimand from T'Challa and have it feel all the same and all the more devastating. You know, I think that this is this is the first time in a long time that I felt that Storm had an actual story, you know, an actual an actual set of of stakes to to be concerned about. I would totally agree. She's been just a character in Marauders going with Kate's storyline. So having her take the forefront and really showing her past, her relationships with Wakanda, I thought that was just absolutely brilliantly handled. And going back to the heist, when she changed from that white uniform to just the visuals of that is so meaningful just symbolism absolutely and that was something else that vita talked about is the, you know the symbolism and the themes with the color of changing her outfit putting her hair up there was so much detail given to storm that it's just so much love and i have to agree with feeling like storm has been taking a lot big backseat storm who i think is one of the most powerful amazing beautiful iconic members of the x-men in this current dawn of x seems to be having to take a backseat to other people's storylines i personally even feel that her giant size issue was more of a phantom x doug story as opposed to an actual storm story, you know, it was about storm with this techno organic virus, but it was, it felt more about Phantom X confronting his brother and staying in that world, as well as Doug talking with the virus. So having storm be able to basically have her own issue dedicated to things from her past and what that means. I, I we stand. We stan. I, I wanted to just go over to the attribute section of the data dump on Skybreaker and just say that, you know, it says here, Skybreaker is a conduit. It can convert small amounts of energy into exponentially larger amounts of energy, amplifying and channeling that energy. And when I think about, like, who else would be, if not for the king of Wakanda, who else is best suited and best qualified to wield this weapon? It's literally called Skybreaker. You know, I, I feel like, and it goes back to, you know, in, in the second act of this issue, when Storm begins to question whether T'Challa gave her all of the intimate details about protection of a sword, knowing that one day she might have to take it. You know, I just think it's a it's a wrong place, wrong time situation. Of course, he would have given it to her. It's just a matter of how long could you have waited. Oh, that was the most tragic part that, like, right when she was finishing the heist, he shows up. I was like, oh, no. I mean, he has been in space and he's a little MIA at this point. So I have a lot of sympathy for Storm having to make that hard decision. And T'Challa has his own commitments and his own storyline going on. And they're on a deadline. It it was heartbreaking that he showed up right at the end. But I would side with Storm saying that she made the right decision, even though it was really hard. Oh, absolutely. I, I love how she realizes, like when she says at the end of Kate, she's like, we have not lost allies, but there will be a lot of work to gain to get back this trust. So 
like she knew that it's not over between Wakanda and Krakoa and Storm and T'Challa, but she knew that this is going to set back things. and It's just weighed on her. You know, I think her best line comes on the very last page when she says, I've been a protector longer than I've been a wife. I know the sacrifices that must be made. I know who I am. I feel like that is very, very characteristically Storm. Agreed. Oh, absolutely. I, I have to uh, completely agree with you as well. I think it's a very powerful line that especially reading from the earlier uncanny runs when storm was first introduced by chris claremont a lot of storm's conflicts stem from what she wants to do and what she wants to be she almost the embodiment of i'm a a lover not a fighter and she really doesn't like doing violence or killing people but having her have another conflict of roles where she was a wife and she is now a protector you know the goddess of krakoa it's really refreshing seeing something that was part of her character so long ago be revitalized and reintroduced in a way that makes really great sense for storm and i know i don't know a lot about the relationship between t'challa and storm but nico is waxed poetically i don't know how many times and I have seen plenty of memes of when the X-Men go to visit Storm in Wakanda. And she's like, this is Wakanda, this, this, and this. Don't touch anything. Actually, just leave. And I think that's hysterical and amazing. So I'm glad that they get to have a moment. And I hope that means they get to have more moments. Even if they don't end up back together, I think it would be really great for them to have a really strong friendship. Because I don't know if everybody knows, but Storm and T'Challa have been friends for years. They've known each other for, I, I can't tell you exactly how many years, but it, they've known each other almost since childhood. Yeah, kind of what you were saying with uh, back to like the Claremontine era too. I love the page where she's talking to Kate at the very beginning, near the very beginning, where uh, it's bookended by like significant parts of Storm's history. Like you've got her as a baby, you've got when the plane crashes, her in Cairo, her as a goddess. And then on the X-Men era side of it, like it's just her in the beginning, um, her as a teacher and her welcoming back people to Krakoa. But I thought the cool thing, which was really in my eyes, one of the most formative things for Storm was uh, the pan- the little panel that shows her winning the leadership of the Morlocks, because I think that was such a formative piece of Storm. Oh, absolutely. The the little panels showing her history, I thought were just beautifully done. I felt it really was a complete story and history of her with some of her more important moments. And especially because she's taken a backseat, like we've said, showing her and what she's been through in the forefront, I think was really important and really good to show. Does anybody want to touch on the the two other worlds, uh, I guess, nations that they talked about? Oh my gosh, yeah, I was going to say. Um, the one that really interests me the most was the Mercator. Um just because like the mysteriousness of the the new regent that came in um, and that Mercator happens to be the last name of Absalon Mercator, Mr. M. So that's uh, really got me wondering and just like the description of the region himself and knowing like Mad Jim Jaspers is also one of the regents of Otherworld. Like is Mr. M one of the regents of Otherworld? That would be very interesting. I think Mercantor is probably one of the most interesting. I really do hope that we get to visit all of these, at least at some point. I, I, I They might actually be having to in the other issue we'll be talking about is Hellions. 
but Mercantor was interesting. I also thought Sevelith was interesting, but it is just vampires. So I just think it's like, you know, Transylvania, Dark Shadows, Twilight, maybe in a little bit of um, True Blood in there as well of what's going on there. I <laughs> That's a place I definitely not I don't want to go visit. Uh, oh, what's that one? Vampire Diaries. There we go. Um, let me just name all classic Ooh. vampire shows. You know, it is interesting that it shows up in such a storm-focused issue, that data page, because out of all the X-Men, except for Jubilee, she probably has the most experience with vampires. So That is true. Dracula was like, Storm, you are mine, and I'm going to make you a vampire. And she was like, no! Okay. And then they, just, <laughs> then they defeated Dracula, who actually has pretty scarf. <laughs> Here's this scarf that has a D on it, and everyone's going to be like, that's a great fashion moment, Storm. And she's like, I know, right? Can I just like have a little bit of your blood? <laughs> so that all happened. And then we did eventually get Blood Sorceress Storm, who's a vampire, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, and Mutant X, and I also did a another Bloodstorm in uh, X-Men Blue, but the Mutant X one was like, yes. I don't know if you've guys ever read it, it was where Havoc was stuck in that other reality. Um, and he was like married to Maddie Pryor, and it was crazy. Uh, everything's crazy. But yeah, so Storm definitely... It, actually, that's a really interesting note that I didn't think of, Nathan, that the Vampire Nation was brought up in the Storm issue, who she does have a lot of experience with vampires. So it's, again, paying attention to the details. Those Those two nations were introduced in the storm focused marauders for a reason so i hope that they're really good things to come with those i've been doing my homework uh a little bit incomplete i haven't been reading these uh other dimensions of other worlds instead i've been uh screenshotting them because i read digitally uh, don't sue me marvel i've been <laughs> screenshotting them and making notes as to where they appeared and keeping them on hand for when we actually get into stasis because i want to see how many of these worlds are actually featured because if not like i appreciate it but don't waste my time you know like yeah. I, I i want to know all of these locations but I want to know how many of those these locations will actually be seen. That's a really good point. I, I wonder that myself. It's like, don't give me that mystery if you're not going to give me the payoff, right? Yeah, honestly, right. I was laughing so hard at the last panel because of just the way it was arranged with um, Wolverine and Magic just sitting on the ground, like waiting. <laughs> to show up and i don't know that image just tickled me where it's like how bored must they be waiting for everyone else to get their swords like are they playing uno are they gossiping like what are they doing and i don't know and just like seeing that it's like oh yeah not everyone is going to show up at the same time they must get bored waiting are they just sitting there does someone bring them food what's going on and i don't know i just i loved it i thought it was so funny maybe that's why kate's hanging around she's like i gotta get yana cheeseburgers she needs cheeseburgers <laughs> i honestly was just have to say those are three of kate's best friends there <laughs> so yeah. she might just be hanging around the circle making sure that they're okay and they got she's like, you got some snacks you got you need a condom anything and it's like <laughs> she's a cool mom anyone want to get a quick stick and poke tattoo no nobody no. <laughs> <laughs> do you want a, a kill who and who tattoo what <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, it's something that we've talked about is 
the there isn't an exact timeline of what's going on, like how much time is passing between everyone. So just to see that Ileana and Wolverine are just sitting down and they're not standing with their sword with the circle glowing is hilarious. And again, where do they? How do they know where to stand? Like, okay, Storm moves, but that's but that's beside. We don't have to talk about that yet. But Storm does move. Oh, because I didn't even notice that. Uh, so because it looks like from where she's standing, if Ileana is the twelve, is the twelve o'clock position. Um, so from Ileana, it should be six. If you're going, you're facing Ileana. Uh, you're facing the direction Ileana would be staring at. Uh, if you go six around, that's about where Storm shows up here. But in New Mutants, she's next to Wolverine. Interesting. Hey, I would get bored sitting across from somebody for like potentially hours to days. Like I might want to get like a little bit more cozy and you know what I mean? Like shouting to somebody from across a weird summoning circle. <laughs> it's like we can have that weird like maybe they were just like in person sexting, you know? Hellions Number no. 5 by Zeb Wells and Carmen Carnello was a lot of fun. It had a lot of humor, but for the most part, I do kind of feel like this high-energy issue had about three yeah. pages of plot, maybe four, but it was spread out over 21 funny pages, which yeah. I like. Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, I think this was more about eliciting laughs than progressing the story very much. Robbie, how about you? How do you feel about Hellions? Is this your book or not one that you look forward to each month? Well, I would say overall, Hellions is probably my favorite title out of um, the current line. But mainly, I think it's because of, um, I mean, obviously, a lot of the Madeline stuff. But um, overall, I think it's just the humor that Zell Wells is able to do with the characters is something that I really appreciate. Because before this, I never really read much with um, orphan maker or nanny but very quickly nanny's becoming one of my favorite x-men characters ever and he's doing that solely based on um humor and funny one-liners with her oh, okay now i have to be real with you guys i was more disappointed hearing that nanny was going to be in this book but before we can even get into how surprised i am at how much i love nanny Part of what we're trying to do with this show going forward is give it a real-to-life feel, like somebody walking into a comic shop and getting to have a conversation with their friends who happen to be there. So with that said, everybody, please welcome Arturo to the stage. Hey, guys. I guess it's hey. a stage, right? It's like a podcast stage. But before we go any further, where can everybody find you online? Uh, you can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. So, Arturo, we were discussing Hellions and how we feel about this issue. We were saying that this issue was a lot of fun, maybe a little bit light on plot, but for the most part, it was a highly enjoyable 22 pages. Now, I know that you've said that this issue cracked you up and you had a great time reading it. This issue was, I think, my favorite Hellions to come out so far. Um, I agree totally with what, what you were saying, Robbie, about the humor in it was just undeniable. <laughs> like, I like I, I don't remember the last time I actually laughed out loud reading a comic book. And this Damn. this one happened like three or four times. And, uh, and I think the thing that I love so much about it was what an unexpected turn uh, for Zeb Wells as a, as a writer for me. I, I haven't read a lot of his stuff. So, look 
looking at you know the the previous couple of issues, I think he definitely has a good tone with with horror and suspense. And I, I was kind of like feeling like I was getting a taste for him. And this was so unexpected. I was like, oh damn, he can do this too. Because <laughs> this was great. This was just comedy from you know from from the very outset when uh when Empath said, catch somebody who gives a fuck, I died, you know, like just <laughs> so fucking good. Yeah, this this was this was a real standout. I think Zeb is the best Mr. Sinister writer we've ever had. Just a, an exceptional issue and not not at all what I expected. You know, uh, I think we, we've got this cadence right now with Ten of Swords where we're going on the on the sword quests. And so I thought it was, you know, I, I didn't know what really what to expect of Hellions. And I just loved how it really set out the bar and said, yep, so none of these, you know, misfits are have been selected as champions, but we're going to give them a, a sword quest also. I'm glad you said misfits and I'm glad you brought up Empath because here's the thing. I hate Empath. Like, I too much hate Empath at this point. There was a period in time where, like, I thought Empath was trying to win me over and earn my love, but no, that has explicitly gone to Grey Crow, who already had it. Don't know why he needed to win it. But this book is starting to become a story of people searching for redemption, like Quanin, who's searching for redemption has nothing to do with being a mutant, but has to do with herself. Wild Child. We have Grey Crow. We even have Sinister, who I don't know that that's about redemption, but he's definitely looking to turn some kind of corner. And I feel like Empath has really crossed over into a place where I just hate him like too much and it'd be one thing if he was like a lovable kind of hatred but no i really enjoy watching him die (laughs) and i want to see better from these characters because like arturo said this is the book of the misfit mutants but whether or not i see empath being able to recover from this sort of shit spell that he is is kind of secondary to i think the purpose of hellions this is not about healing people like x factor is nor is it about breaking them per se but it's more specifically about the journey these characters are going on towards redemption or not they're making it very clear who wants to be redeemed and who's pretty much okay being garbage empath king of the garbage yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I agree. That's that's the that's the magic of empath at this point is that he's such an irredeemable asshole that like that's his lane. You know. You uh, yeah. I don't want to see him get better. I, I want to see him, if anything, spiral worse. Now, again, because this issue is kind of light on plot, it's a little bit hard to discuss the Hellions issue five, but to discuss the Hellions would be a lot of fun. I mean, we've all been pretty hardcore positive on Grey Crow and Quanin, and we all seem to have a strong affinity for Mr. Sinister, because how can you not, although all the child torture, I guess, puts it up there. But, you know, the bigger thing about it is that, for me, is that Nanny and Orphan Maker were always, like, the biggest jokes of the X-Verse. Like, they were the most pathetic villains the X-Men had. And that has nothing to do with necessarily Wheezy or Claremont at the time, but, like, Nanny and Orphan Maker have gone from the thing that made me the least excited about this book, which, again, from the outset, it wasn't going to be my jam. And now, they're the best part of the book for me. Same, same. Yep. Now, how do you guys feel about the transformation of Nanny and Orphan Maker into these dynamic central figures? I mean, I think uh, I think in general, when I first saw the the cast of Hellions, you know, announced, I was like, what the? You know, like it, it was yeah. just such an unlikely mix of of characters. And specifically with with Nanny and Orphan Maker, um, I'm with you. Like, you know, contextually and, and in the stories, there's a reason they never really came back and were were big recurring villain you know they were just weird and they were you know they were interesting but you kind of get a little bit and you're good you know 
Yeah. And now I'm at the point with them where I don't even care about how they got here. I'm just so glad that they're here because they definitely add, you know, um, a funny element. You know, I mean, Nanny's one-liners are just amazing throughout throughout the whole issue. I, I mean, I feel like I've turned around on the whole team. You know, I, I, I felt like Havoc being in this team wasn't really like, well, he's not really a bad guy and dialogue isn't really bad. But I, I mean, this is this has become maybe the book that I'm I, I get most excited excited about i mean i know i I love marauders i know i love x-force hellions was a very unexpected surprise how much i've fallen for this book yeah so i i have to echo that i was definitely not a fan of nanny and orphan maker but i do feel like they give a balance to the team where we have these characters who are kind of difficult to care for i guess and they they diffuse the situation when things get heated among the members of the group. So i finding myself really enjoying that. Other than Havoc, I really haven't had much experience with, with Greycrow or with Empath. So, I mean, they're, they're kind of fresh slates for me. Blank slates for me. A lot of these are characters you don't really see much of, and it kind of reminds me a lot of Gail Simone's Secret Six, how those were characters, how they were all, like, Z-list characters. I mean, not saying that, you know, Kalanin is. You know, most of them were characters that were obscure characters. And then that was also a book like Hellions, where you, you know, very quickly got attached to these characters. I love that, that this an X-Men story without Cyclops and Wolverine and Storm. It's yeah. nice that, that, like, this just shows, like, with the right creative team, there are so many mutants and there's so many stories to be told on Krakoa. Like, I, I love this. I, I love uh, a team of Z-Lifters pulled together and and they're all just shining in their own way you know, i love i love psylocke and uh and wild child's relationship um and, and i'm just and i cannot say how much i love sinister right now the, the, the whole bit with him and the cape and the, and the clone was just gold and you know what mr sinister represents has been a radically transformed idea at one point mr sinister was meant to literally be a child's nightmares come to life he was the most evil thing that a child whose power was to create the most evil thing could imagine and now he's sort of this kind of like funny kind of queer dragsy kind of and you know maybe it's better that he's kind of queerish than sebastian shaw who used to be kind of foppish but anyway you know i think mr sinister's humor through zeb wells writing and i'd never thought that zeb wells was a particularly funny writer he always had kind of like a a grim dark vibe for me but seeing how far he's come with the humor in this title has definitely been a humanizing factor i'm grateful for the ways this transformed my understanding of Zeb Wells as a writer and his sinister is really funny Kieran Gillen transformed the character around AVX that seems to be coming up a lot this episode and now here we have the further evolution after writer after writer has added to this very funny very sort of flamboyant character and I'm curious about these sinister clones and how Sinister versus Sinister is going to play into a bigger part of the story going forward. That said, I honestly didn't find myself too thrilled with the story going forward this issue. By the time the second half of the story picked up, I found myself a little bit bored and really not sure why I was supposed to care. Well, like when they're in when they're in Otherworld, you mean? Yeah, once the story took a turn to the actual event that they had been voting on, it seemed like a lot of the tension broke. I appreciated everybody just getting on the wagon and having a good time, but I maybe didn't need 12 pages of a good time in my favorite bad time book. Um, mm. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it um, it just it definitely felt like, OK, here we I mean, right down to, you know, them riding horses, you know, going towards the mountains and the sun setting behind. Like it just felt so. And here we're going on a on a grand quest. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of corny and, you know, maybe not what you're looking for in an X-Men book, but I, I'm here for it. Yeah, like it kind of felt to me like um, the second half was kind of in like um, a D&D session where yeah. the characters are at that last like uh, 20 minutes of the session and then they're kind of preparing and everything. I mean, it was a bit of a different, it was definitely a shift that second half, but it, yeah, it kind of felt to me like they're preparing for their own little D&D <laughs> well, Kyle, I know you're quite the D&Dist, so I gotta know, would you want to go on a quest with the cast of Hellions? Oh, oh boy. Um, <laughs> I, I have a feeling that this group of Hellions would be, uh, they would be most likely to do everything against what the DM was preparing for the session and would completely set, send the campaign off the rails. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I could definitely see this devolving into chaos. I mean, it already happens before they really leave. So yeah, it would it would be a uh, it would be a challenge to keep my my patience with them. Now, I know Jonah has told me of his experiences DMing and how frequently not everybody wants to play by the rules, and that can be kind of difficult. <laughs> This quest for redemption is becoming more and more interesting the further it goes on as the battle lines are kind of being drawn between the people who want to be better and the people who are fine being miserable and sick for the rest of their character lives. We're seeing an effort from Grey Crow to break free of his negativity and the bits he can't change he's just taken out on empath. <laughs> but we also see Quanin looking to be a master of her own destiny and looking to care for others in a way she felt she wasn't cared for. We're seeing it from Wild Child, who is, I guess, eager to go from being a supporting character in Alpha Flight and X Factor to being, um, I, I don't know, I guess Psylocke's pain sub? I, I don't know exactly what he's supposed to be there, if he's a pet or, or a submissive playmate or, you know, a non-sexual figure in its entirety, which would also be fine. But, like, I do have trouble quite understanding and defining the relationship between those two characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure, to be <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've been in, uh, in enough <laughs> toxic relationships to recognize the dynamic between them, and it's uh, I think it's pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I gotta say this for Zeb. For the first time in ever, I actually see Quanon as a different character. I, 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 like, I, the, the delineation between Psylocke and Betsy and, and definitely could not be you know clear to me now yeah and that's you know i mean considering like where we and i'm not going to get up on my fallen angel but you know we all had high hopes for that and that didn't really pan out and that left me with a bad taste in my mouth not you know for specifically for Quan, not not just like the psylocke betsy of it all but like for this half and uh and i, I just completely turned around on it like i want to see her i want to see more of her i want to see her have her own uh Know, possibly romantic interest in the, in the in the team. I want to see her just really become her own character, and and I think that's just it's crazy how much 
how far she's come in so short a time in my yeah i agree part of the most amazing thing about seeing Quanin's transformation has been seeing this effort to create their own character one of the things that i really think is important is that betsy existed before psylocke but Quanin didn't right Quanin was introduced for the retcon which, you know, growing up, I did not care for the retcon. It was a little too That's confusing for me. I thought it was really a frustrating thing to try yeah. and parse through. So that it wasn't just that she was reshaped, but that she was body swapped was particularly confusing for me as a reader. Right. I don't know. And it's funny that you bring up, you know, that retcon where where they actually made Quanon a character. And, you know, I, I was reading those comics like as they were coming out during that time. And I remember I was like, what? What's going on with this body swap? But I got it and I felt like they resolved it well when revenge came back and, you know, and then she died of the legacy virus, which I know the legacy virus is problematic, but, you know, I accepted it and I thought, okay, this character has had a full, um, you know, a, a full telling and, and we can all move on. And now Betsy's got the cool body. And so when, when Betsy went back to the British body, I, I wasn't a big fan of that. And, uh, and I was like, and now we're trying to make one on a thing. And, and yeah, it's just, she's, I think she's really coming into her own. And I think she plays a really cool role in this team. And I think that's that's one of the things that's making her shine is she has a job here. She has a, a role. She's not just, you know, a side character. And it's not a one on standalone where it's like all about her and her feelings and her problems. It's like you get to see her in action. You get to see her, how she relates to other people and, and, and what role she fulfills. And that role she gets to play is pretty much a blank slate. Now, earlier in the episode... Robbie, you kind of said like, you know, oh, I don't want to call Psylocke as Quanin a Z-lister, but I mean, she really was. Her first appearance was to explain away a confusing bit of story. And speaking of confusing, like a lot of kids who didn't have access to comic books in the 90s, what I did have access to were the trading cards. And let me tell you, the, like the 94 Ultra Fleers, yeah. right? And they were everybody's favorite. Everybody loved those. But like they came with the toys and you, you kind of couldn't escape them. And they painted such a confusing picture of who Quanin and Revanche and Psylocke. She's this lady that's kind of British, but she's kind of Asian. And the other lady is kind of Asian, but she's kind of British. And one is a ninja. One used to be a ninja. One now will be a ninja. One is the fast and future, past, forever, future, furious ninja. It just got to be too much. <laughs> And you find yourself kind of hoping for better from this character that exists to explain away a plot hole. And at the end of the day, now that character exists and people have feelings for that character one way or another. And I'm hopeful because I don't know if everybody realizes this, but at one point, Betsy, as the fusion of Betsy and Quan and Psylocke around the year 2000, journeyed to Otherworld. I don't expect everybody to quite focus on this short-lived Ben Robb miniseries. It was four issues. It followed up the original Excalibur, which he had been the writer on at the end. And so, you know, Psylocke has been, you know, Quan and Psylocke has been to other worlds. So there is so much material for us to mine here. How so? Well, that whole idea of a stranger in a strange land like she does represent where she is the kind of outsider to Otherworld because, you know, it was her body that was here, but it really wasn't her mind. I think there has to be something we can tap into with that. 
Yeah, since she's a character that we rarely ever have seen much of, she's definitely someone, I think from the beginning of Dawn of X, I've been the most excited to see get written out of all characters. Fallen Angels, of course, was was not the best showing, but seeing Juanan take leadership in Hellions and just with uh, Betsy just coming into her own as well again, it's, it's a great experience seeing them both learning to live in their own bodies. This is my favorite Jamie Braddock that I've seen so far in Down of, Down of X, but I don't have much much to go off of that. Just I really <laughs> enjoyed it. You know, I'm a huge Jamie Braddock fan that that is like, you know, the least ex- surprising thing when it comes to this show. And this feels like an extension of that, uh, the return of Psylocke kind of era, Jamie Braddock, written by Claremont, I guess, like, uh, what is it, like Uncanny 444 to 475, she came back somewhere in the 450s, and now, you know, we've seen sort of evolutions of that Chris Boccolo, Jamie Madrox losing his mind, and the magical tea time, and, you know, cutting of quantum strings of reality. I feel like this is an extension of that, and it's just been done so well, and I love that his codename is Monarch, because he is kind of like a king of reality, but also Monarch like Butterfly. It's that beautiful parallel that he shares with his sister. There's already so many parallels between her and Brian and him and Brian. Yeah, I mean, and I think I, I think he and, and Sinister, that their whole interaction was just great. And I, I'm just so excited to see like what, what comes next for Jamie and, and how Ten of Swords is, is going to affect him and his standing in the other world. And uh, yeah, I mean, for the first time in my life, I'm actually invested and I care about Jamie Brown. And you know, I can't help but think that that has been John Hickman's plan all along 